As an elephant expert who works on elephants in Kenya, being able to tell the story of elephants across Africa and Asia was a dream come true. It takes very decisive action from governments. They have to realize what's at stake, though. Sometimes they take too long. Some countries lost almost all their elephants. No matter how many unique things we found out about them while we were filming, and so much research has been done and so many new things have been revealed about elephants, but we're just scratching the surface. Join explorers and travelers on their journeys and discover distant places and fascinating cultures. From the highest peaks and densest jungles into the heart of adventure, this is Unfolding Maps with Eric Lawrence. Today we head to the deserts and savannas of Africa, where we take a closer look at a particularly popular animal, the elephant. These powerful, loving and wise giants hold a great fascination for us humans. And um, during my trip recently to Tanzania, I was lucky enough to see elephants in the wild. And it was a truly magical experience. And yet, elephants are hunted, killed and driven out of their natural habitat. Our guest today has made it her life's work to prevent this. Kenyan conservationist Dr. Paula Kahumbu is the CEO of the organization Wildlife Direct and she has won numerous awards for her work to protect endangered species in Africa. Paula is a National Geographic Explorer of the Year. She is the winner of the Whitley Gold Award in recognition of her outstanding contribution to conservation. And she was named as one of the 25 most influential women of 2022 by the Financial Times. She has also appeared in many documentaries on wildlife and the environment. And she has even produced her own television series, Wildlife Warriors. Currently, she is a part of the new documentary series, The Secrets of the Elephants. It's by National Geographic Wild, and it has been produced by Academy Award winner James Cameron. This TV show shows the life and behavior of elephants and what far-reaching consequences the extinction would have, not only on humanity, but also on our ecosystems overall. And you can watch this series on Disney+. Plus. I highly recommend it. And I'm confident that you will really enjoy spending some time with her in the next upcoming hour. Please enjoy. Hi, Paula. Thank you so much for being on our show today and for taking us into the world of the elephants. Welcome to our show. Thank you so much. And it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure, too. And it is my pleasure to meet you here in Washington. And in this case, in a very special place. Where are we right now? Well, this is the global headquarters of National Geographic. Yeah. So it's a very historic place. Uh, just the home of all that magic that you see in the magazines, on the website and in the television. It all comes from here. Comes from here. And uh, I'm pretty excited to be here, to be honest, because quite a few of my previous guests have uh, told me of life-changing meetings they had right here. Like, I don't know, National Geographic photographer Steve McCurry. A lot of his career started right here in this building, I believe. So it is kind of awesome to be here now with That's you. That's right. And you're on the floor with all the where all the big people are. So in these hallways are where some of the most senior people in National Geographic sit. And as you walk around the building, you can't help but feel the gravitas of everything, all the photographs and images and even paintings. If you walk through all these are very historic buildings, you have these really amazing paintings that chart the journey of this 
organizations for over 100 years. It's incredible. Have you visited often? Yes, absolutely. As an explorer, we all get this great opportunity to visit every year. Oh, wow. And they take you on this guided tour into the basement. You have to do it if you haven't. In the basement are the people, the geeks, who build those amazing cameras that you see in the films. You know, the, the robotic things, the strange machinery that's required for the kind of footage that they're able to get. That's right in the deepest part of this <laughs> building. And then um, you have all kinds of different offices everywhere. And, and as a, an explorer, you get to meet all the different teams, the education team, the print team, the editing team, the filmmakers, the storytellers, and there's workshops going on all the time. So today, for example, I'm going to go to one of the workshops on storytelling. Mm. And then later on, there's another team of people who have come, the Field Ready group, which are storytellers from around the world who are here for a final part of their training. They're going to do their presentations. So I'll get to sit in the auditorium and watch them doing that presentation as well. And I know that you also just did a presentation, so you're also here to not only learn, as great as that is, but you're also here to share. How did this whole uh, collaboration with National Geographic start for you? I know that you've been National Geographic Explorer of the Year a couple of years ago. Was that the start of your collaboration or oh, was no. that uh, just a particular milestone? No, that was a major milestone. Yes. Explorer of the Year is just about the The biggest thing you can become as an explorer exactly. before you become an explorer in residence, uh -huh. which is another level where you actually have an office here in this building. So a number of people have their offices in this building. I started in 2010 as a grantee, and that's how most people come into National Geographic. You apply for a grant on their website. Because you have a special project, something that is scientifically interesting. Exactly. Okay. They have grants. You can apply for anything between $10,000, $20,000. I was studying cheetahs at the time, looking at cheetah-human relationships in Kenya. And from there, I continued applying for grants. I won an award for the African Explorer of the Year. That was in 2011. And then I continued applying for grants. And I do a lot of education, a lot of other conservation kind of work. And then they asked me to feature in this series, The Secrets of the Elephants. Which is your latest collaboration. Exactly. And so the very cool thing about National Geographic, once you have your foot in the door because you won an award, a grant, you become a part of a family of explorers. There are hundreds of us all around the world. And every year they bring the explorers together here in Washington. But also there are sub-meetings, like I've just come from one in London. There'll be another one in Africa next year. There'll be others in Asia and South America. And the idea is all these explorers represent people at the cutting edge of their field. Could be space exploration, education, conservation, science, you name it. You have everything from innovators to explorers in the middle of the jungle and coming together and sharing their knowledge and learning from each other and in many cases collaborating with each other. And that's what makes this a very special place. Yeah, what a privilege, right, for, for explorers like you and an opportunity to share these very, very different experiences with like-minded people. It's, it's academic and, um, and it's work at the same time. These are our peers. And some of my best friends are members of this network. So whenever I come to Washington, I meet up with my friends again and we continue our relationships and our friendships. Many of us actually work together on different projects as well. One of my closest friends works on matters in Tibet. Another one is a stand-up comedian. She's also an archaeologist. So just an extraordinary group of phenomenal people whose stories and lives inspire us within the network, not just those public audiences out there. You mentioned your most recent collaboration with National Geographic, which is, of course, the TV documentary series, The Secrets of Elephants. I'd like to talk about that in a bit, but um, on the topic of elephants, it's pretty clear whoever looks you up and 
prepares a little bit and finds out more about your life, uh, it's pretty clear that elephants are a pretty big portion of your life. You have researched them for many years, you have uh, done a lot of exploration and expeditions, and you have gained a pretty deep understanding of elephants, how they are, but also the way they are endangered and the ways they are important to, to save and to protect. After all those years, how do you feel today when you go into the wild and see an elephant in, in his or her habitat? What do you feel in that moment? That's such a great question. I have never gone into the wild and seen an elephant and not been excited about it. <laughs> it's so strange. It's almost like seeing your friend the next day. You're still excited about seeing your friend. It's Well, it can get know. a little bit old <laughs> if you see him every day, but <laughs> I guess it depends I, on the friends. <laughs> I guess. In, with elephants, yeah. I have to say, they never get old. Yeah. They never get old. They are so interesting. I'm, I sometimes worry that I upset people around me because I'm like, no, let's watch them longer because people come to Kenya and they want to go on safari with me and they want to see lions and rhinos and everything else as well as elephants. And I'll be like, let's just watch these elephants. And they'll be like, but they're not doing much. They're just standing there. They're just feeding. It's like, no, they're doing a lot. They're talking to each other in a language that is so subtle, we cannot hear it. They're flapping their ears. They're doing things with their bodies, which you have to take time to watch them to understand who are they communicating with? Hmm. What are they saying? Who's in charge here, really? Who's taking care of that baby over there? You'll see really amazing things when you just stop and don't make noise and just watch. You'll see things which you would never notice if you're just driving through. Like a lot of people just drive through. Okay, photo of an elephant, done. Okay, let's go on. Hmm. Let's go find the lion. Elephants are those animals that when we stop and watch them, we see such interesting, amusing, entertaining, and maybe life-changing things. We start to see ourselves in them. Can you give me a little example for that? One of the last times I was in Amboseli National Park, which is this beautiful oasis at the base of Mount Kilimanjaro. It's this incredible landscape. And the elephants, hundreds of elephants live there. They live in families of sometimes 15 to 20 individuals, and they move usually in single file along these paths. You can see the paths in the dust. And if you see elephants walking towards the road, you can actually drive and stop very close to where they will definitely cross the road because you can see the path as it goes across the road. And if you wait there, they will pass right next to you. And they don't mind cars. They will come very, very close. Sometimes they'll even stop and look at you and throw dust on themselves. And, you know, so the last time I was there, there was a family that had a tiny, tiny newborn baby. And what was so interesting is this baby normally is just like trundling along next to its mom or behind the mother sometimes. But when they came close to the road, the whole family stopped and waited for the baby to catch up. Then they all surrounded the baby like, uh, like a small little army mm -hmm. <laughs> and these huge legs. They just kind of like shepherded the baby across the road. So the baby was surrounded by huge legs and trunks and all the elephants were walking together in a very coordinated way, keeping the baby right in the middle. Nobody stepped on its toes, anything <laughs> like that. And it was very clear that there were quite a few vehicles had come. Everybody was really excited about seeing this baby elephant. But the elephants were not going to let the baby walk on its own in front of the vehicles. It was only when they were on the other side of the road Now the baby is safe. Then they spread out back into the single file and continued walking. It was just so clear that they thought about it. They yeah. decided on something. They worked together. They operate as a family, as a unit to defend one baby elephant. It's just amazing. 
That reminds me uh, of a scene that I've seen in the show that we're talking about, The Secrets of Elephants. There are several episodes, and it was, I believe, in the episode on savannas. And I believe the scene took place in Zimbabwe, where a group of elephants tried to climb down a pretty serious mountain cliff. Of course, not a vertical drop, but it, it's pretty steep, and it's a challenge for these elephants, a challenge that they are meeting, that they are facing, that they are trying to overcome because they want to reach a river. They want to drink. And it was so interesting, but also touching to see these interactions that just the way you described it, that you may totally miss if you don't know what to look for, if you're mm -hmm. really there. But luckily, the camera operators, the film team, of course, they know what to mm -hmm. look for. And they show you close-ups in the show and make sure you see how the grown-up elephants take care of the baby elephants and support them in going down there. Um, giving them security and direction with their with their trunks or with their little tails touching the head of the baby elephant to make sure it tucks along and and and, and follows yeah. in the right way. It's so cute to see these interactions. Maybe cute is it's almost <laughs> uh, humanizing it too much. I don't know, but it, yeah, it, it was really touching to see yeah. this deeply social connection that they have. It it really is amazing, and you're right. If we if we had just come and seen elephants walking along the edge of the cliff we probably would have missed all of what you've just described because the elephants are so sensitive. Mm. They know that it's a very difficult challenge to go down those cliffs to the river. So they're very, very hyper alert of anything, a twig breaking, and they will stop mm. and go somewhere else because they don't want to get caught halfway down that cliff and find themselves in any danger. They will only go down when the matriarch is certain that There's nobody anywhere nearby. And once she starts going down, she almost has to keep going because you can't turn around and go back up because all the other elephants are backed up. And also, once you're going down, you have to be so well coordinated and everybody must be communicating with each other because if one elephant slips, it will bash into the next one and the next. And they all fall like dominoes. They will all go tumbling down to the bottom of the cliff. And the babies are, of course... They don't really know what's going on. They're just doing whatever their mother's telling them. And sometimes they go wandering off onto the wrong track and one of the babies walked off and the mum just stood and waited. What we couldn't hear is probably what she's telling him. You know, like, stop, you're going the wrong way, come back. Because all you saw is the mother stopped. And she's just like a statue, just waiting for the baby. And the baby realizes, oops, wrong direction. And he takes a turn and comes back, back to the main path. And she just waits and lets him get back into the path, into the right position on the path going down. To me, it really signifies that a lot of what we know about elephants is what we can see. The day we actually learn to understand what they are communicating, which is not visual, which is, uh, or maybe it's visual, some of it might be body language, but a lot of it is going to be auditory or even pheromones. Because they, I don't know if you noticed, if you look at the elephants on the side of the face, they have these small wet patches. Mm -hmm just here by the side of their, their eyes, those are pheromones. They are releasing chemicals. And those chemicals are another form of messaging. And do they also talk to each other in terms of voice on a level yes. that we can't hear? Oh, yeah. Elephants speak in infrasonic tones, which means it's a very, very low, low, yeah. low, low tone. We cannot hear it. But they can hear it, but they can hear it for kilometers. So you can imagine on those cliffs, when the elephants are talking to each other, the elephant at the back is still talking to the elephant in the front. We cannot hear it, though. There's so much going on that we don't have a clue of. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. We can only see and try to interpret. It would be like watching a movie hmm. with, a, with the sound off and trying to interpret what's going on. It's quite hard. And that's what we're doing. 
the day we learn to really understand what they're saying, it will be a completely, it'll be a revelation. It'll be <laughs> secrets of the elephants, three, four, five, <laughs> up to 20, because there's going to be so much more information coming out. <laughs> yeah. Talking to you takes me back in time in a wonderful way because I've just come back a few weeks ago from Tanzania. Uh, we did a walking safari there yes. and the foot of Kilimanjaro, also trying to find some elephants. There will be some episodes coming up, uh, so I don't want to uh, give away uh, too much of that. But on that whole journey, we saw, of course, some elephants. And in this case, the case that I'm thinking of, it was a mother with two small ones. And even these three elephants, we just spent... I don't know, 10, 20 minutes with them. Didn't want to bother them too much. It was so interesting to to observe them in the sense that the two younger ones showed so different personalities in the sense that one was more curious and courageous and I think wanted to demonstrate a little bit of independence and checked us out a little bit more, came a little bit closer. The other one was more like looking for protection from uh, from mama, staying in the shade of her big body. Right. Um, so even these personality traits, at least I thought I could get a glimpse of just by looking at them. Absolutely. Elephants are individuals just like humans. And that's how we, I guess, can relate to them more, is that they do have these different personalities. And their behavior will also change depending on who they're with and what happened yesterday. Hmm. Because just like us, you know, they might have had a bad day the day before and they're still upset with somebody in the family. So they're, they're animals that we can study and learn, but we can't always predict everything mm. that they do because some people, you know, want to know why. Is that an elephant that I can get close to and that one not? I always tell people just don't don't try and predict anything. Some populations are much more calm around people and some are a little bit more cautious. But even within a population, there are individuals who are not so calm. And what we've seen in producing the secrets of the elephants is that this behavior is a learned behavior And it's also taught. So the babies are being trained by the mothers in particular. So while we were in Zimbabwe, on the top of that cliff, it was very interesting. We were watching um, an elephant who was on the road about 200 meters away. Uh, in Kenya, you would drive right up to it. Mm -hmm. There's no problem. The elephants will just walk across the road in front of you. And uh, the driver of our vehicle told us, we're not going anywhere. And I was like, I want to get a photo. And he's like, no, we're not moving. So why? He said, because she might charge us. These elephants are very, very nervous. Some of the elephants are very, very nervous because of uh, problems around the edge of the park where they have human-elephant conflict. Human-elephant conflict usually means they get too close to farmers, for example, that yeah, feel they, threatened yeah. by elephants or exactly. disturbed or lose crops. And then there's aggression. Bad yeah. experiences for both sides, exactly. usually especially for and, the elephants. Yeah. And this bad experience is handed down through the generations. That's part of what they teach Their children, their young ones. Be and, careful with humans. Yeah, be very careful with humans. But in some cases, elephants have been persecuted so much that they even think, well, if it's a human, we must get rid of it. It's mm -hmm. a threat. Yeah. And I saw this not only in Zimbabwe, I saw it in Congo as well, where the elephants would actually gather, make a plan and try to charge you. And the babies are <laughs> brought into the front just the way humans might teach their children something that mm. they want to show them how to behave in case of a certain situation. So they would charge us. They were not going to hurt us, but they were clearly teaching the babies. You know, if you see this small box thing called a car and there are people in it, this is what we do. <laughs> they all got together and they ran towards the vehicle. Luckily, we were quite far away, so we could just go away. And because the last thing you want is to train them and keep retraining them about chasing vehicles. But what it means is that it's going to take 
some generations before they lose that fear or hatred of people. They keep redoing it and teaching the youngsters that that is what you do in when you see a human, this is how you behave. I would like to talk about this uh, conflict between humans and elephants and how to deal with it a little bit more in a bit. But first, I would like to take a small step back because as we now heard, you are very passionate and knowledgeable about elephants. But I believe it didn't start that way, especially with regard to the focus of your interest. You, for example, your PhD you did on uh, monkeys, I believe. No, I did my PhDs on elephants. When Then I correct me. Um, yeah. was doing my bachelor's degree, I was studying monkeys. Yeah. Then on my master's degree... I was offered to study elephants or monkeys. I chose monkeys because at that time there was so much poaching going on mm. and I didn't think it made sense to study an animal that looked like it was about to go extinct. I thought it would be a waste of my time. But I did a little bit of work on the ivory stockpile and it was really depressing. So I, I also didn't want to work on something that was going to leave me feeling so sad and miserable. I wanted to do something that I was excited about. Monkeys, like humans, are, are fun to study. Mm -hmm. And now when I look back on it, I feel bad that I was thinking so much about myself. Like, what's going to be the best for me? You the know? best experience. Yeah. And yeah. how am I going to get the most data for my PhD? Mm. If you're studying an animal that is being persecuted, you're not going to get much data. Because they're hard to find. They're and hard to find and study. And they're not behaving naturally anymore. Yes. Mm. They're behaving only as a persecuted creature. When I started my PhD, I had actually looked at many different options. I had gone all over the country looking for ideas. And then I decided, I fell in love with elephants in Amboseli. But I decided to do my research in the forests in southern Kenya. And that research was really to understand how does a savannah living elephant live in a forest? How does the forest alter the behavior of the elephants and how do the elephants alter the forest? And it was just a fascinating, I spent eight years doing that research. It was really fascinating, really amazing. Where does this a passion for, for animals and nature in general come from? Can you pinpoint that? Did you grow up in a very natural environment where you know, <laughs> parents, animal fans, where did it all start for you? I don't have a day that I can say was the first day I got interested in nature. But when I was a very small child, maybe about five years old, I was with my brother. We were always outdoors. I have many siblings. I have four brothers and four sisters. But my older brother and I were often together walking and, and exploring. My parents used to actually send us off Until mealtime, they would say, just go play outside and go wherever you want and come back at mealtimes. We would climb trees, wade in rivers, go fishing, do all kinds of things and only come home for meals. One day we were looking in a tree and there was this amazing animal in the top of the tree, furry, big like a big cat. And we had no idea what it was. Richard Leakey was our neighbor and he stopped his vehicle and asked us, What are you children doing? I know that name because Jane Goodall mentioned it. He was one of her early promoters, advisors, how were the role models? Louis Leakey. Okay. Richard Leakey was Louis Leakey's son. Okay, okay. And I Richard see. Leakey. I was wondering yeah. how does that fit together timeline wise? Okay, now it makes more sense. Uh, yeah. And Richard <laughs> Leakey was um, a very famous archaeologist, mm -hmm. paleoanthropologist, and he, he was running the National Museums of Kenya at the time. He was my neighbor and he just happened to see us, asked us what we were doing and then told us that animal is related to an elephant. It's called a tree hyrax. And just this nugget of information set my mind on fire with imagination. You know, this animal is related to an elephant. I wanted to know more. And he said, if you guys have any questions, come over, I'll answer. We used to catch mice, birds, lizards, snakes, you name it. We'd bring them to his house to learn about them. So I would say I had the most incredible 
encyclopedia neighbor who could help us with all this information. Can well, I start? Knew and, all the stuff, but evidently also had a skill for storytelling to really excite you about it. And the patients. Yeah, yeah the patients, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talk to children about <laughs> these animals. And he would always tell us, now you have to take it back and return it back to his nest, and return it back to wherever it came from. It has to go back home, whatever. Is that for you? Sorry for interrupting. Is that for you an inspiration in any way to become not only a scientist and an advocate for elephants, but also a storyteller yourself? Yes, in a way. The way Richard Leakey responded to me when I was a small child and really entertained my curiosity is how I treat children today. Mm. So I do a lot of work on education. I believe that that moment when you're a child and somebody really takes care to listen to whatever it is that's interesting you is when you decide this is worthy of the rest of my life working on this. So often we tell children, don't touch that. It's dirty. It's dangerous. It's going to hurt you. You know, it's not important. That's not a career for you. We tell that to children without realizing the power of those words. When somebody tells you, that's fascinating, you know, go and find more. There's power in those words for children. Mm. I got very, very interested in nature. I was a, a schoolgirl in an all-girls school. I would go on every field trip, climb trees. I was a, I, would, I wouldn't say I was the best scholar, <laughs> but I loved being out in the wild. And eventually when I finished high school, My career options were very limited. I was supposed to go and become a secretary. I was sent to typing school to learn how to type. And I lasted three months and I was almost dying from boredom. I ran away and I went back to Richard Leakey, who remembered me. And I told him, I don't want to be a secretary. I want to be a ranger. I want to go in the wild and look after lions and all these things. And he took me under his wing and he supported me, helped me get my first internship, introduced me to people made sure I got to go and do uh, field internships with elephants, with baboons, with monkeys, in forests, on islands. I mean, very few people would have that kind of patience with a 17-year-old high school leaver, <laughs> you know. I did, and I, and I, like I said, I was not an A-star student <laughs> by any stretch. <laughs> It's impressive to me, first of all, what a great person he must have been. But also what impresses me right now is the parallels between your story and indeed Jane Goodall's story, who had kind of similar experiences with Richard Leakey's dad. And now you are the next generation of, of animal advocates. That actually, to be honest, that is what makes the Leakeys and the Leakey family so special. Yeah. They really put a lot of attention to supporting, especially women, which I think is fascinating if you think about it. Jane Goodall, Diane Fossey, Baruta Gaudikas were all the protégés of Louis Leakey. Richard Leakey, he has many, many protégés and they're not just scientists. There's myself, his own daughter, Meeve, is also a paleoanthropologist, but he also works with people who are advocates of environment, people who are artists. Famous People who are very famous in Kenya today, including men, but a lot of women, got their real boost from Richard Leakey or recognized the opportunity that uh, these young people represented. There are very few people who would actually give you half an hour of their time. Mm. And most of the time when you spent an, uh, half an hour with Richard Leakey, he wouldn't talk that much. He would just say, what are you interested in? Why do you want to do that? He would just ask questions. He wouldn't say much. That he would just make you understand, oh yeah, that's what I need to do. That's the path I need to take. Those are the people I need to write to. Those are the doors I should open and walk through. That's what he would do. He would just point you in the direction of doors. Yeah. He might send a letter and say, I'm sending Paula to listen to her. That's the kind of support he would give. He never gave money or anything like that. He would just say, he would just write to him and say, you need to talk to this person. 
call them. Encouragement and opening doors, but not taking away your own responsibility to turn that into action. Absolutely. Yeah. What a role model. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have any defining moments with elephants? Probably very hard to, to answer after all these years of, of working with and for them. Mm -hmm. But is there, is there something that you are sure you will never forget? Something beautiful or maybe also yeah. sad and shocking? I have many. Yeah. <laughs> I have so many defining moments with elephants. I mean, the day that I decided I was going to do elephant research, I had so many options. I was so lucky that I had so many options of what I could do for my research. But I spent time with these two phenomenal women, Kenyan women who were doing research. They were research assistants for Cynthia Moss in Amboseli National Park. Mm -hmm. There was Soila Sayalel and Nora Njiraini. These two women, their job was to go out with a big notebook on all the names of the elephants. They had photographs of every single elephant and they would just do like a roll call, like, oh yeah, present, present, absent, whatever. Uh -huh. They were tracking who's who in the family. And that was what I thought research was all about. But when we went out with them, they would look at the horizon, they'll say, oh, look, there's Eli or whoever his name is. He thinks he's so great. Look how he's walking. He's he's walking in a way because he thinks he's going to be able to mate with so-and-so. And they would unfold a drama like a soap opera about these elephants. Like so-and-so had an argument yesterday with this one. That's why they're saying apart today. And look, this female, she's about to have a baby. So now look how the rest of the family are behaving around her. You know, they could read and they could identify hundreds of elephants, but they could read the behavior of these elephants and tell these stories and they would laugh and, and the elephants would hear their voices and come closer to the vehicle. I realized that, you know, this research was going to be a lot of fun. It wasn't just science, dry science. Yeah. There was so much fun and meaning in everything that that they were doing. So that was one of my most defining moments. I decided then I'm going to study elephants and I'm going to study them in a different location where nobody has studied them before. So that's why I went to Shimba Hills, which is in southern Kenya. The, the forests that yeah. you mentioned early on. Okay, so this moment that you are describing basically revealed to you what we discussed in the beginning of our conversation, which is that they do have personalities and that they do have a very yeah, exciting social life, social interactions that are not only revealing but also just amusing to watch yeah exactly yeah exactly that's beautiful just an aside question we are talking mainly about africa of course there are elephants in other places as well particularly asia which kinds of elephants do we usually find in africa well until recently we thought there was only one kind of elephant mm -hmm. the african savannah elephant but now it's known from the genetics that there are actually two species of african elephants the african savannah elephant and the african forest elephant And the forest elephant separated from savannah elephants about three million years ago. So they're quite different. They look different. They are smaller. Why did people think they are the same species if they well, look so different and live in different places? Well, largely because no research had been done. Okay. They're very hard to study. They're mm -hmm. very hard to find. That's why you wanted to do it. Oh, wait. I was not studying forest elephants. I was studying savannah elephants that live in forests. Okay. The Now Afri it's getting complicated. Yeah. But yes. So savannah elephants live in all kinds of habitats. We call mm -hmm. them savannah elephants, but actually they live in all kinds of habitats. From coastal mangrove forests, they go all the way to the tops of mountains and every habitat in between, from deserts to savannas, forests. But the African forest elephant, which is a different species, only lives in African rainforests. And that animal is different, quite different. It's smaller, it's chunkier, like it's a more compact animal, big ears, long, narrow tusks, which goes 
you know, point downwards. You know, African savanna elephants, their tusks often point out to the side and they're usually very thick. Which would not be handy in a in thick a f forest. No, it would it would definitely yeah. get in the way of moving mm -hmm. around in the forest. So the forest elephants are um, physically different, but they also behave differently. They live in smaller families. They're not very loud. They're quite silent. Those Some of the behaviors may be more recent adaptations to mm -hmm. threats. They don't want to make a lot of noise if there are people around. They don't want to attract attention to themselves but they, and their eyes they don't look like savanna elephants at all savanna elephants have dark brown eyes mm -hmm. the forest elephants eyes are different colors some of them are golden yellow and some of them are chestnut so when you see a forest elephant peering at you from in the vegetation it's almost spooky you know you suddenly you notice it looking at you because their eyes kind of like pop in the vision like through your binoculars beam. yeah it's really amazing That definitely the eye color must have something to do with living in a very dark environment. Talking about dark environments in a different meaning is that yeah, times have been quite dark for elephants in the past. And in the media, of course, we hear quite a bit about declining populations, about dangers for elephants, the numbers of elephants being killed every year. Uh, through ivory poachers, for example, but also other human-animal conflicts. Elephants are being persecuted for their tusks, their meat, but also the land they live on. And in another interview with you, it's from quite a few years ago, you say that in Tanzania, for example, where I've been recently, the country lost 76% of its elephant population in a time frame of only five years. I believe that was around mm -hmm. 2015, which of course are shocking numbers. People right now in Tanzania told me that it's gotten better there, at least in the recent past. But can you give us an overview in general, Kenya, yeah. Tanzania and etc.? What is the situation like right now? When the ivory trade was partially reopened in 2012, The elephants all across Africa were affected, but particularly East Africa. Was that legally reopened? Yes, it was It was legally reopened as a decision of the CITES Convention, which was really unfortunate. The what convention? The Convention on International Trade in Endangered okay. Species uh -huh. of Flora and Fauna. Yeah. This convention is a global convention of which most almost every country in the world is part of. They get to vote and decide on whether we can sell ivory, which is kind of ludicrous because elephants only exist in a few countries. But... Unfortunately, there are some countries that have large stockpiles of ivory because they've been collecting it over the years. So they may have tons and tons of ivory which they see as valuable and they want to sell it into markets and convert it into cash, which they say they will use for conservation. The problem is that if you sell ivory from a Southern African country into a market like China, Thailand, Japan or any of these countries, the demand is so high that the price immediately shoots up. So the price of ivory went from around $120 per kilogram to over $3,000 per kilogram. And you can imagine what that does. Great incentive for more poaching, of course. Exactly. So in countries which have poor enforcement, you know, in some countries have very, very few rangers or very, very poor enforcement systems. Even if you catch a poacher, to convict them is very difficult because then the whole judiciary chain is broken as it is. But also these criminals are not ordinary criminals. These criminals are already engaged in other major crimes because moving ivory is like moving huge things, right? It's mm. like if you think of the illegal timber trade, these are not small time criminals. You don't hide it in your luggage on a usual economic flight. Exactly. Yeah. They're huge things. So you need to have a whole chain of corrupt officials. You have to have a whole transport chain already set up. 
So once you've created this chain, it could move guns, it can move drugs, it can move illegal wildlife products. So these three things we often see are interlinked. Sometimes they're even moving humans. So you'll see a lot of uh, human trafficking along the same pipeline. Same people are behind it. So because it's a global issue, you'll find that internationally it's become a big, big problem that something has to move along this pipeline to keep it working. Yes. Whether it's going to be mineral ore, ivory, timber or humans, something has to keep moving along these pipelines. And Kenya seems to be one of those main countries. So the problem was Kenya doesn't have huge populations of elephants like Tanzania. Tanzania had, I think, about um, over 200,000 elephants. Some decades ago, like in the 70s or 80s. Even uh, in a, around 2010. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yes, they had a lot of elephants. And so if you are an ivory poacher or if you're a dealer and you want to get a lot of ivory, you're going to go to countries which have a lot of elephants and very weak policing structures, right? Mm -hmm. Weak enforcement. Tanzania worked really well. The people involved in that business, many of them are Chinese. So they are people who have been living in that country for a long time. They have very good intelligence. They know what works. They know how to exploit the system. And a woman who then got dubbed the Ivory Queen was finally arrested. But until then, her method was to find populations of elephants where you could kill a thousand elephants per month. And that was once you once you can no longer reach that, then you move to the next population, you move to the next population. And you could actually visually see the dead bodies moving from place to place as they moved their killing teams to get their ivory. It was so disgusting. In the Congo and in the rainforest, you can't even see the dead bodies because it's so hard to go into those places. But the ivory was being moved by criminal gangs or, you know, cartels and sometimes even, you know, warring militias. That want to used. make a buck. Yeah. They need to, yeah, they yeah, want to make money well, too. And sometimes it's not even money. They're just exchanging ivory for guns. Mm. So this is why it was so hard to get a grasp of this whole thing because you can't just follow money. Right. Yeah. You're, you're following ivory is being traded for guns directly. And that's how they were financing some of those major crises and things happening, for example, in the Congo was being funded through ivory. But one one question you mentioned this uh, this uh, confederation this trade organization I already forgot the name again. CITES. You mentioned everybody has a vote there, but not everybody has elephants. Does that mean that it happened that countries like Zimbabwe didn't want to legalize ivory trade, but other nations decided yes we will legalize it? Unfortunately, because that would be yeah. crazy. There are fifty four countries in Africa, and I think something like thirty four have elephants. Have some elephants. Hmm. There are four or five countries that want to sell ivory. They persuaded the whole world to open the ivory trade. Wow. It wasn't the first time either. We had done this two times before and we've seen the results. So Kenya has always been staunchly saying, destroy the ivory, burn it, crush it, destroy it. Because the moment you keep it in your vault, it gets more and more valuable over time. And the reason to reopen the ivory trade becomes stronger and stronger. Because it's it's like a gold stockpile yeah. and because there's exactly. a shortage, yeah. exactly. um, demand grows, the value yeah. grows. Price and that's why going. when you talk yeah. about burning these stockpiles, it just literally means you have halls full of ivory that have at some point been collected, mm -hmm. harvested, yeah. taken from <laughs> elephants. A lot of it illegal, yeah. yeah. And it's just being burned, which by the way is something that even my guides in Tanzania told me about because I know that has been put on TV, mm -hmm. huge bonfires made of ivory to basically show in an impressive way this market is dead. 
this is right. closed, this is over. So this seems to have been in some sense, at least, um, back then pretty powerful. People was, are still yeah. talking about it today. The destruction of ivory has sent a very, very clear message all around the world. France has destroyed their ivory. China has destroyed ivory. Hong Kong, the US, many countries have destroyed their ivory. It basically some... tells these cartels, we don't want your ivory anymore. We rather burn it than sell it. Exactly. And, and to me, the logic is so simple. If you seized drugs like cocaine, you would never hold them in your vault for a day, one day in the future when you can sell it. It just wouldn't make sense. It would be unethical. Yeah. You would destroy it there and then. So that was our argument in Kenya. But as a result of the ivory trade and the price rising, we saw Tanzania's population just collapse. And then the approaches moved to Mozambique, which is just south of Tanzania. And the Mozambique population just, just almost like a vacuum cleaner, just destroying elephants. And so few years. We're in, not talking about decades yeah. and decades. Well, because now we have incredible ways of moving things, right? In a in a film that was made about Tanzania, they said the Chinese aircraft were even being used to move it out of the country. So if you can avoid detection through whatever kind of a bilateral agreements you have, you could move almost anything out of a country. So it's, yeah, it's very sad that they lost so many elephants. But... The new leadership in Tanzania has taken it very seriously. The population is now safe. It's a female president, I believe. It's a female president. The um, the elephants are doing much better. They have huge, vast protected areas in Tanzania. More than thirty percent of that country is is a protected area. Hmm. So their elephants. If there's only any country in Africa that can secure elephants, it will be Tanzania. They have you know vast, vast land areas, and surprisingly. Even though elephants are slow-growing and uh, long-lived animals, their populations do recover if you just don't keep harassing them or poaching on them. So I have I have a lot of hope for Tanzania. I think that they have a really good chance of recovering their elephant populations. That sounds good to me, hearing the word hope, because I also read in yet another interview with you, probably also from a few years ago, where you predicted that if we keep going like this, uh, we'll probably not have any elephants left within our lifetime. Do when you think we, we, we can avoid that right now? Are you hopeful? Yeah. There, there was a time when we were losing one elephant every 15 minutes. That yeah. means, you know, we're losing dozens of elephants every day. I mean, it's really shocking to imagine that that was what was happening in the continent. Somebody was gunning down an elephant every 15 minutes. That has completely stopped. If you come to Kenya today, I think the rate of poaching for ivory is maybe less than five per year. So it's really, uh, the elephants are... <laughs> Are safe. The elephant population is is recovering. So I, I think that um, it takes very decisive action from governments. They have to realize what's at stake, though. It sometimes they take too long. Some countries lost almost all their elephants. What is at stake? What would happen if the elephants were gone from these ecosystems? Well, one of the things that few people really comprehend is how important elephants are in African ecosystems. Elephants have been part of all of our ecosystems for millions of years. There used to be many species. There used to be 12 species of elephants. Today, there's only two in Africa and one in Asia. But uh, if you go into the savannas, it's very clear to see how much role they play in maintaining grasslands. They pluck tree seedlings and keep the grasslands open. They also prune the trees and they bulldoze pathways through forests and woodlands that other animals use as well. So in savannas, it's very clear the role that elephants play in maintaining the diversity and accessibility of nature's 
But when you go to the rainforest is where you really see the impact. I was blown away. I've been hearing about it, but I've never seen it for myself. The elephants in the rainforest are primarily fruit eaters. So what you see is pathways through the forest like a spider web. But those pathways are always going somewhere to certain trees. Mm -hmm. And the elephants feed on those trees and you'll find seedlings of these rainforest trees in the dung of elephants all over the place. And by the way, the dung of elephants, I mean, we've seen it in Tanzania, especially the fresh one. It's like a paradise for insects, right? There's so much <laughs> life true. in there, yeah. which probably also is kind of important. In terms of nutrient uh, recycling, absolutely. One elephant is eating 150 kilograms per day. Yeah. It's also pooping 150 kilograms per day, right? So, so there's a lot of nutrient cycling going on inside the gut of an elephant, which is really, really important. And then the insects, which are in that dung, there some of them are actually eating whatever's left over because elephants are very poor digesters. Whatever goes in, it comes out looking kind of the same, mm -hmm. to be honest. It looks almost the same. But there'll also be animals going in there to find seeds. You'll often see birds. They'll be scratching away and they're picking, pecking at all the seeds in there. What it means is that elephants are very, very important dispersers. An elephant can walk 40 kilometers in a night and it's moving seeds from one place to the next. And many, many species we now know will only germinate after going through the stomach of an elephant. Some of those seeds are so big. I mean, there's one palm. The seed is, I kid you not, maybe about three inches wide. <laughs> the only animal that can swallow that is an elephant. And when it comes out, it germinates. And we have these incredible groves of palms in some parts of Kenya. The only animal that could have planted them is elephants. We talked about the fact that the situation of Some elephant populations improved, not all of them, I'm sure. And you have been, I would say, quite a part in that improvement. You have worked very hard to influence the situation in a positive way, uh, not least of all as the CEO of your organization Wildlife Direct, which aims, I would say, to connect people to wildlife and nature. Would you give us a glimpse into the work of that organization and what you're doing today, but also how you tried to stop poaching? Sure. I joined Wildlife Direct in 2007 when it was a blogging platform. We were trying to encourage people to tell their stories from the front line to global audiences so that we could raise money for conservation. What we found is that many of the stories from the ground were the same. When you say the ground and front line, what kind of front line do you oh, mean? I'm talking case? of conservationists, rangers yeah. on the top of the mm -hmm. mountain in uh, Congo, in Virunga, Mount Virunga, telling stories about saving gorillas or uh, scientists in northern Kenya trying to save lions. What we found is that many of those stories were similar. The same threats were facing these animals. And in uh, 2013, we decided we're going to launch campaigns because some of these problems, the individual authors from all over Africa, we had 120 different storytellers, they didn't know each other, but yet their stories were resonating. And the story of poaching was emerging again and again and again in different parts of Africa. So we thought we need to do a campaign to stop the poaching. In Kenya, we felt particularly vulnerable because the poaching of elephants could easily wipe out the population. We only had around 30,000 elephants. So we decided we have to gather information. The government was denying there was a problem. We needed information. So first we gathered information from the ground, what's happening with poaching. And then I went to the courtrooms because we, there were people being arrested for poaching and the government was really excited to declare we have success. These people have been arrested. And I was like, how come? We are arresting so many people, but they're still poaching. Why is it not getting less? So we started following the trials of all the poachers. In the end, we evaluated around 4,000 wildlife trials in Kenyan courts. There are 120 courts in the country. Mm -hmm. We found that 70% of those cases were closed 
because the files were lost or missing. Wow. Which basically means corruption. Of course, you can only find these statistics if if you create them, if you really keep an eye on all of these trials, which probably nobody did previously. Nobody had been looking at it. Today, it's a major part. All across Africa, people are looking into what's happening in the courtrooms. Mm. But before that, nobody was looking into the courtrooms. And it was the, the advice of somebody in the government intelligence sector who said to me, if you want to stop the poaching, you have to follow the whole thing from arrest all the way to getting to jail. Yeah. So we started following these individual cases because we were often arresting poachers, but we know that there were kingpins. There were these powerful people like Faisal Muhammad Ali. He was a man behind the seizure of around two tons of ivory in Mombasa, one of the biggest cities in Kenya. And the only people arrested were the guys who were believed to have loaded the truck with the ivory. It didn't make sense. We needed the top guys. So we had to work with all kinds of people from not just the courtrooms, but the wildlife authorities in private investigators. Where was the guy? We knew his name. We had been tipped off. We knew his name, but we couldn't find him. We had to bring in Interpol. Interpol started searching for him. Nobody knew where he had gone. We kept hearing, oh, he's in Somalia. Oh, he's in Sudan. Oh, maybe he's gone to Uganda. Actually, he was in Tanzania and it was Interpol who found him. They brought him back to Kenya and he had to face trial. And after two years, I've never seen anything like it. This crime scene where the ivory was found was destroyed overnight. So there was no crime scene for a judge to go and see the crime scene. But by then, hopefully, they secured the evidence. They shouldn't need to go to the crime scene two years after the fact. So the problem was the judge in charge of the case kept getting changed. So the case had to start again from scratch. And then the vehicles, which were part of the evidence where the ivory was being transported, they disappeared from police custody. Mm. Eleven vehicles disappeared. Witnesses vanished. Nobody knew where they were. They couldn't come to court to give evidence. These kind of things were happening and interfering with the case every step of the way. And finally, we realized the kind of people we're dealing with when I had uh, lawyers working for me. And this guy literally put his two fingers like a gun, pointed them to our lawyer and just poof, poof, like, you'll be done, you'll be next. I was going to ask you, I mean, this sounds like you must have had some pretty serious enemies. Yeah, my my team were threatened several times. We had to get private security. It was crazy, but it was critical. If we didn't fight this kind of guys, they would just continue. They had to know that it's going to cost money. They were in the newspaper every day. We were actually demonstrating on the streets of Nairobi, thousands of people marching with placards about getting these people put in jail. The government couldn't ignore it. The government couldn't stand up in the world and say, we're doing something about it, unless they actually did something about it. So in a way, we pushed the government to accountability. The man was eventually found guilty. The law had changed as well. So he was put in jail for 10 years and fined. It was something like a million dollars. He never paid this fine. He stayed in jail for three years. Then he was able to fight for his Early release? Yeah. Not not even early release. He actually was able to appeal the conviction and he got out. The most shocking thing, the same guy, because I never went to court. I would have other my lawyers going mm-hmm. to court. I was in northern Kenya recently in an airport and, and uh, somebody called me over and he just looked like an older gentleman. So I greeted him. Then he said, do you know who I am? I said, no. He says, I'm Faisal Muhammad Ali. He was the guy? He was the guy. And then he said, I am your alleged ivory dealer. I said, really? How are you doing? said, I'm okay. And he was with somebody else. And I noticed they were filming me with their telephones. (laughs) So, you know, these guys are going to always give us trouble. They are 
obviously not going to work on things which were getting them in the limelight because it wasn't only the Kenya government going for them. The British were helping, the Americans were helping, you know. Everybody wanted to convict these bad guys. But they're very smart. These are very smart people and they're many, many networks. Yeah, they're well connected mm. and they're part of a much bigger operation as we talked about before. These exactly. are cartels with international yeah. infrastructures and supply and, chains. Yeah. So the most important thing was to make sure the price of ivory came down because so long as the price of ivory was high, it was worth their while still fighting for it. The moment the price of ivory dropped, they're not interested in it and they continue doing whatever other illegal criminal things they're doing. Maybe they're selling, I don't know, used cars or something. But... uh It was the drop in the price of ivory that was the most powerful signal to everyone. It's not worth killing elephants, getting potentially arrested, going through a trial. Like this guy spending three years in jail, your name is on every billboard and newspaper. It's not worth it. Part of the solution is to bring the price down and to expose these guys publicly. How did you find the courage to go head to head with guys like this that you knew had powerful friends that were not scared of taking really serious action against people like you? You know, I was very lucky because I was working with Richard Leakey. He is somebody with so much courage. I didn't ever feel that I was at risk. The biggest mistake for me might have been to put other people in danger, in physical danger. So I worked very hard to make sure we were never in physical danger. Anything that required arrests or anything was done by government. We were just assisting, but we were documenting. And you were publishing. the public face of this whole campaign. Yeah. You did a lot of communication. You don't need to be at the side yes. of the arrest, right, to, to have enemies. A few are the one who creates all this public pressure. That's true. And uh, at some point, our advisors would say things like, avoid these places, behave this way, don't behave that way, to avoid a situation where you might get targeted. There was, very sadly, a German investigator in Tanzania, Wayne Lotter, who was killed in the streets of Dar es Salaam. He was assassinated when he was doing similar to work, work to what I was doing. I admire you for it. Uh, thanks for sharing this. Of course, poaching is one of the dangers um, facing elephants. We briefly mentioned another whole dimension, which is animal-human conflict, such as with farmers, for example. It's a big topic in itself. We unfortunately don't have time to go into that as well, but we will cover it somewhat in our uh, upcoming Tanzania episodes. As the final part for this conversation, I would love to uh, talk about your work of communicating the issues of elephants in a different way beyond a wildlife direct, which is, of course, your TV work. One of the, I think, milestones in that work for you must have been a TV documentary series called Wildlife Warriors, which yes. you produced yourself, I believe. Yes. And it was hugely successful, especially in Kenya. I believe it reached 51% of the population or something like that. How did you make that happen, that a documentary series and so much interest? Well, I've always believed in the power of media and yeah. stories. And I've seen this from way back when the first story I did, which was just a serendipitous. I was working in Mombasa. There was a baby hippopotamus which was orphaned because of the Indian Ocean tsunami. Mm. And I was among the people who rescued it. The story of that baby hippo and his survival, his name was Owen. His survival was through befriending a giant tortoise. And it was just a cute story. In my mind, there's a cute story. Took a photograph, put it on the newspaper, and it went wild. People had this idea that if a hippo can be rescued by a tortoise, 
then there's magic in the world. You know, it was like incredible. We eventually did a book with a colleagues of mine in New York, and that book sold over a million copies in 27 languages. So it's phenomenal to me. What happened is so many people wanted to help the hippos. And we never asked them even for anything. We're just like, here's a cool story. So with Richard Leakey, we decided this is something we really have to do is storytelling. And I started off with the blogs. Then I moved to television because most Africans still watch television every day. My first TV series was no budget. <laughs> we had no money. Yeah. So we just did a conversation, a talk show. And we had half a million people watching at 10 o'clock at night, a conversation between two people sitting on chairs. And I thought, okay, there's something here that people have really underestimated is the interest in my country, Kenya, in nature. People have not realized there's this huge interest. So I started Wildlife Warriors after I raised some money from USAID, the Department of the Interior, and some other private donors like Wildlife Foundation. And I told them, I want to tell stories about African conservationists at the front line who are doing amazing work, but I want to go on the ground. And I have a channel, which is a TV channel in Kenya called Citizen. They reach 30% of Kenyans. I think this will be a powerful way to get the story out. But I want to make it myself. I don't want the TV channel to make it. I want to make the series myself so that I can stay on the quality and the storytelling, the honesty of the storytelling. And to their credit, they gave me the funding, which was not a small amount of money. And I've never made a film before in my life. <laughs> um, I made the series. The first season was 13 episodes and they gave me more funding for the second season, another 13 episodes. So we have 26 episodes now. And this series has been extraordinary. We've told stories from everything from the first woman guide, driver guide in Masai Mara, to a man who is an engineer who gave up his career to look after turtles down at the Kenyan coast. All of the stories have a backstory that person that we're filming is relatable to any Kenyan, mm. boys and girls. You know, that could be me. I could have come from that village. I could have looked at, you know, had that experience as a child. And what we've seen is a massive interest, surge in interest in nature, in going to the national parks, in filming and in telling stories. Which also is great. It would be great, I suppose, if more of these stories on African wildlife, nature, conservation, would actually be told by Africans. Well, this is a really, really big part of this. So we started off with an African crew making wildlife warriors, which has been a huge journey in itself. Then Disney came to me and said, hey, what you're doing is interesting, but let's look at another series for children. So we created a new series called Team Sayari, which means Team Planet, with a Kenyan production company filmed in five African countries with 11 children presenters, all African. <laughs> I mean, it's just phenomenal, the amount of interest. Yeah. And today I just heard from another Kenyan TV channel, they want to start producing their own wildlife documentary series. We have a network of over 400 African filmmakers and storytellers and scientists who want to get involved in this space. It's amazing because they've always been there. These people have always been here. The stories have always been there. But the way that the film, the wildlife film industry has operated in the past has been stories have been thought up somewhere in, I don't know, could be Germany or England or America. Then they are commissioned somewhere and then they come to Kenya as a little crew and they do their work and they go back. And there's no space for Africans to get involved at all. Maybe a driver, maybe a cook or a chef, but not really in the storytelling, in the filmmaking, in the narration, in the science, in the research. This is all shifting now. And This year, for the first time, the Wild Screen Festival, which is the biggest wildlife film festival in the world, is coming to Nairobi. We've partnered with them to bring the global wildlife filmmaking industry to Africa. 
so that African filmmakers can meet them on our own soil to pitch stories, to share our experiences, to troubleshoot, to find new opportunities for collaboration and to do masterclasses. So I'm really excited. Things are changing very fast. I think some people are a little bit confused, like how come things are moving so quickly? Yeah. But it, all it took, it's like the, like the finger in the dike kind of a thing, you know. Once we unleashed a little bit, we realized, wow, there's so much potential. And today we have an underwater filmmaker who's doing a lot of work now with the BBC. He's a Kenyan. We have uh, a Kenyan filmmaker who's now based in Bristol. Her name is Faith. She's phenomenal. We have a Tanzanian woman making a film with a German company on lions. So there's these great collaborations which have already started. And we're going to start seeing more and more of this indigenous storytelling coming to the big screen. Which is really great and I'm also convinced so impactful because in Tanzania really every single one of my guides and rangers, guiding rangers, I asked them all, how did you get into this? Right. Why are you doing this? And they all had the same answer. They watched TV when they were small and they yeah. saw documentaries and they loved what they saw and this inspired them. So I'm sure what you are doing right now and what you're talking yeah. about and what is growing and being created right now as an industry almost will have such a huge impact. Yeah, exactly. That's what I believe, that the relatability of the people on screen or even the people who made those films is going to cause the public of Africa to suddenly realize we have this incredible wealth and treasure of nature that we've never engaged or realized. We've always looked to, I don't know, going to Switzerland for something new or going to Dubai for shopping. Well, actually, our holidays, we should be going to Masai Mara <laughs> or Kilimanjaro, you know, or down to see the desert elephants in Namibia. I think it's going to shift things very dramatically. It will create interest. It will grow understanding. It will make people proud of what they have. It will make sure that it becomes maybe even part of their identity as Africans, yeah. even more so than it already is. So that's great. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, of course, it's also still important to tell all of these stories on a global scale to help others as well to understand the significance right. and beauty of nature and to protect it. As we talked about, uh, things like poaching, they are an international problem. So that is why I'm also really excited about your very current uh, project. We mentioned it as well, The Secrets of Elephants. It's produced by none other than uh, James Cameron, <laughs> the big right. James Cameron for National Geographic. And I have to say, I loved it. It's so beautifully done. We talked about this one powerful scene early on in uh, Zimbabwe on this mountain cliff with the elephant. It's full of scenes like this, several episodes, highly recommended. What is this uh, series about and what was your part in it? Well, Secrets of the Elephant is really a continuation of another, another series called Secrets of the Whales, mm. which is really to uh, focus the world on this one species and all the amazing things about it that we don't really know. And elephants are hard because we know a lot about them already. But they're also a species in peril. So my involvement in this series was really, initially, I thought I would just come in as an expert. But actually, they asked me from the get-go, you know, will you be the presenter? Which is amazing. So as an elephant expert who worked on elephants in Kenya, being able to tell the story of elephants across Africa and Asia was a dream come true. My job was really to help audiences to see it, to feel as if they are in my shoes, uh, witnessing these incredible sites, these most spectacular locations, like the cliffs in Zimbabwe, one of the most beautiful places on earth, I believe, or the desert elephants, the, the struggle those elephants face every single day. This was a 
landmark series and I think an opportunity for us to refocus attention on the need to do everything possible to save elephants. Is this attention still needed today? You said actually, you know, situation improved quite a bit. They are probably safe for now. Elephants are not being poached for their ivory, but elephants are losing space, which mm. they need desperately. They're also losing connectivity of their habitats. As you've seen in every single episode, elephants migrate over vast, vast distances. And when we build roads and railways or we put all these barriers in the way of their movement, we prevent them from thriving and we cause the conflicts that we keep seeing. So elephants are not safe anywhere. In Namibia, for example, there are only 150 desert elephants remaining. So they are in dire straits. That whole subtype of elephants is at risk of disappearing within the next 10 years or so. Yeah, that's why it's so important to keep telling these stories. Is there any particular memories from shooting this series that uh, stand out to you that you think back to most often, most, most uh, Well, you know, I've been looking, I took a lot of behind the scenes videos and yeah. photographs and I've been sharing them on my Facebook and remembering these incredible sights and sounds and smells. You know, the, the scene in the Desert Elephant episode when we see the family It looks like we just drove and found the elephants there. Well, when I look back on that time when I was in Namibia, it took us a very long time, took days to find those elephants. It was not obvious and we almost didn't get that scene mm. because my flight was the very next day. We saw them literally just before sunset on that particular day. So there was a lot of, I would say, a lot of difficulty in getting some of those shots. Some of the most exciting episode, to me, the most exciting episode was Congo. Going into the rainforest, you're, you're like two days away from any town. You're in the middle of the jungle. It's spectacular. I di really didn't know what to expect. And it looks green and lush and you can hear the birds and the insects. But what you don't see is the insects. Oh my <laughs> God. It was like we were being attacked by insects all the time. Jungles so, can be tough. I was lucky because my hands were free. I could swat them away. But the crew hold the camera still and they're being bitten <laughs> and stung. And That's I true. Mean, I mean, people have pity with you, because, if anything, if they see you are being harassed by these mosquitoes or whatever. Nobody thinks of the poor camera operator yeah. who has to keep filming. It was it was crazy, the, the number of insects. I'm yeah. talking of millions. They were buzzing around us. And at one point, I filmed the cameraman when we were just leaving his hands. You know, it was at the time monkeypox was a big problem. Mm -hmm. I told him, you're going to get arrested because you look like you've got monkeypox. He had bites all over his body. Like they were not like small mosquito. They were big, huge bites on his hands from, you know, I, I can't believe his ability to stay focused and not move, not flinch while being bitten by all these insects. The crews. Yeah. So I would say that the The most uh, memorable thing about all these shoots, every every single shoot was special in its own way, but the crews were fantastic. You know, working with world-class filmmakers, and they, they go from everyone from the actual camera work, like Toby Strong, who did the Desert episode, to even the researchers and the young people who came as interns. The amount of commitment and the teamwork, it was phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it. It's You know, when I, when I watch the series now, I'm like, wow, that's, it could only happen because you all care about what we're doing. It's not just a job. Everybody really, really wanted to make sure that every scene is perfect. Every story is complete. 
it was fantastic. And it's so great to to hear that even these productions that have a higher budget, big names, National Geographic, Disney Plus, and all of it, it is a true work of passion. Absolutely, it's not some uh, corporate output. It's done by people who know and love and are willing to work for these topics and animals. Absolutely, and, and to uh, suffer for it as I'm, well, I, and suffer for it. <laughs> I mean, in some places, oh my God, if you see the where they had to sleep sometimes in the desert, you know, in tent in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. But uh, I'm so excited that one of the cameramen, Toby Strong, and I are, are working on trying to raise funds now to save the desert elephants. So this series really helped me to understand. Most Africans don't even know we have anything called a desert elephant. Many people have been to Namibia and they've never seen these amazing elephants. They're so rare. And uh, all it would take is actually to secure a corridor from Etosha all the way west to the Skeleton Coast. We're working with people on the ground in Namibia to identify what part of this corridor needs to be secured and how can we get donors to help us to secure that land work with the communities, work with the landowners so that the elephants can continue to thrive. Is there something that you would love more people to know about elephants? Something uh, where you oh, yes. feel oh. not enough people know this? Most people probably watch the series and fall in love with elephants. They're just lovely animals. But the amazing thing that is undeniable, no matter how many unique things we found out about them while we were filming. And so much research has been done and so many new things have been revealed about elephants. But we're just scratching the surface. These animals have a brain many times bigger than ours and it's more complex than ours. They have a sense of smell many times better than a dog. They can talk in a tone that we cannot hear and their ears are so big they can hear each other kilometers apart. There are things happening in the brain of an elephant that we just can't comprehend. We're going to continue discovering more and more things over time, but we may never uncover all their secrets. <laughs> I think that's the perfect conclusion for this episode. Some secrets will be kept by the elephants. That's right. But I'm very grateful that you shared some of the secrets that we have been able to, to reveal thus far with us in this conversation. Thank you so much for, for sharing your experiences and your insights into the life of elephants. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.